The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. So I want us to talk for a few minutes about division, not division in a mathematical sense that has absolutely no relevance to this conversation, but division in an oppositional sense. What divides people? When I was much younger, a little bit more naive, far more idealistic in my thinking, I used to have this crazy notion that people would divide over deep, meaningful, lasting issues. And um, just made sense to me. I mean, my thought is, why go around angry with everybody? I mean, who wants to expend the mental and emotional energy that comes from hating people and opposing people and being at odds with other people? So it seemed very simple in my mind. But in my older, more cynical years, I have come to realize that for some people, divisiveness is like air. They crave it. They breathe it in, they blow it out. It is like essential to their being. In fact, I don't even know if they could get a good night of sleep if they don't first throw out a couple of divisive comments on social media just to keep it all stirred up until tomorrow morning when they can wake up and start it all again. They love drama. Well, I have learned along the way that where there are differences, there are divisions. And that is going to be something that applies with political divisions as well as racial divisions, economic divisions, religious divisions, you name it. Where there are differences, there are divisions. We live in a very divided world. So let's bridge that encouraging thought and bring it into the church for just a moment. Since Christians are never divided, since, yeah, I know, love and harmony, and unity, and peace. It just kind of oozes out of who we are. Since there's really no difference in different denominations, we serve as a great example for the rest of the world. And I can hardly say that with a straight face, because Christians are a mess. In fact, sometimes I think that Christians might be more divided than others because we can justify our divisiveness with phrases like, I'm standing for truth. I'm standing for God. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Ours is a special kind of divisiveness. We, we dress it up in church clothes and we wear it like a merit badge and we tack God's name onto it for validity purposes and then we let it marinate in a little bit of sinful pride so that whenever we're divisive, we're not actually divisive, we're righteous. Like this is what God would have us to do. And let me just say, sometimes that is the case. Sometimes We need to make major stands, and those stands will cause division. But that's that's on one far extreme of things. The other end of the spectrum also has some concerns. That is, there's some people with no deep convictions and no important stands, and they tend to accept anything and everything. And that position also dishonors God because often it attempts to accept what is sinful and sometimes even celebrate those things. Like, hey, let's just all get along. Let's not talk about that. Let's just kind of work through things and just love everyone. Let me just say that is also a problem. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the Philippines on a mission trip with our church. And on our days coming back through, we, we went through Manila. 
And early one morning, I decided to turn on the TV just to see what is on, you know, Filipino programming. I've never watched Filipino TV. I was not sure what's on there. And I found this religious channel. And it caught my attention because there was a dude on this religious channel and he had a snazzy white suit. I'm talking like Easter Sunday morning. I just got paid and I want you to know it. Good looking suit. I mean, it was fine looking suit. So I'm watching this guy and I'm I'm listening and he says he's talking about Christian unity. And I'm thinking this is going to be fun. So about 30 minutes into what he was saying, or about 30 seconds, not 30 minutes. I couldn't watch that long. 30 seconds in, he said this phrase. Jesus's words bring people together. That's how you know it's from Jesus. His teachings unify. And my first thought, and maybe this is critical, my first thought is, have you ever read the Bible? Because I know the Bible talks about a unity that we can have in the Spirit. That's absolutely there, and we're going to get into that. But Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I mean, he's covering some ground. He's like, there's going to be some division that comes with him. So Jesus said, I have come to divide people and White suit dude is saying, Jesus' teachings always unify. Now, who am I supposed to believe in that moment? It's, it's really not much of a challenge right there. He always go with the one who got up from the dead. So he's very clear. Okay, but that situation, it brings up an extremely interesting point that I do think we need to take a moment and kind of process through. Jesus said he came to divide people. And yet Ephesians 4 says... For there is one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's over all and in all and through all. That sounds very unifying. Then 1 Peter 3, 8 tells believers have unity of mind. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 says, let no divisions be among you. Ephesians 4, 3, it says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So which one is it? Do we focus on unity? Or do we focus on Jesus' words of division? Does Jesus bring us together? Or does Jesus drive us apart? Do we scrap it out with Jesus? Because it kind of sounds like he's ready for a good fight. Or do we submit so that the Spirit of God can bring unity? When do we take a stand that is necessary? And when do we walk in humility and submission because the Spirit of God is saying to? There's a lot on each side of this. As we finish out John chapter 7 this morning, we're talking about when Jesus divides. And in this section, there's a whole group of people, and they're all divided against each other, and they're divided because of Jesus. And they are divided in a very unique way. And that is, you need to see why they're divided. Because if we don't see the why, if we don't understand the why, if we can't pick up the why and apply it into our lives, there's going to be times when we may be bringing division when God is wanting to unify or times that we might be trying to unify and God's saying, no, division is necessary. How do you know where the line is at? 
I invite you to go with me in your Bibles this morning, John chapter 7, verses 40 through 53. I'm speaking this morning on the subject, when Jesus divides, John chapter 7, verses 40 through 53. It says, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division, get that word, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priest. If you'll remember from previous messages, the officers were the temple police. They had been sent out in verse number 32 to seize Jesus. And then it doesn't tell us what happens. This is where it's now telling us them coming back. So it says that the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, you've not been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Everyone went to his home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask at this point, God, you would give incredible, incredible clarity. Help us to know when we are supposed to take a stand that divides and when are we supposed to submit in a way to unify. May your spirit guide us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever we left off a couple of weeks ago, we talked about an urgent invitation that was given by Jesus in verses 31 through 39. Jesus invited people who were thirsty. That is those who had an insatiable craving, an insatiable desire for spiritual and emotional wholeness. Those who were tired of drinking from the dry wells of the world. Those people who were looking for and searching for what was real and what was pure and what was fulfilling. Jesus says to that crowd, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Now, when people heard the invitation, they responded, but they didn't all respond the same way. We find that the division that we see in this set of verses is in direct correlation to the invitation that was extended in the previous set of verses. The division here is because of what Jesus has just said. Where there are differences, there are divisions. Now, those divisions are everywhere in this chapter. In chapter 7 alone, we see that some people defended him. Some people wanted to arrest him. Some said he's a good man, verse Number 12, others said he leads people astray, also in verse number 12. Some believe that he was the prophet or the forerunner to the Christ, verse number 40. Some said, no, he's the Christ himself, verse number 41. Still others were completely confused about who he was, and they were just astounded by his teachings. That's the group that is referred to as the temple police or the officers. I want us to spend our time focused on that group and their interactions. And the reason I want to focus there is because in previous messages, we've already addressed those who thought he was the Christ, 
those who thought he was the prophet or the forerunner, those who just thought he was a good man, those who thought he was more. So we've already covered those in other messages. This is a new group right now, and they're coming with a different level of confusion. Now, if you'll remember, the temple officers were sent to seize Jesus back in verse number 32. But when they came back, empty-handed in verse number 45, they never claimed that the crowd prevented them from seizing Jesus. Instead, they were stunned by him. They were shocked by his teachings. They were mesmerized by what he said. They said in verse 46, never has a man, never has a man. In fact, that, that, that indefinite article, a man right there, it actually goes back to help people see in the Greek language, never has an ordinary human spoken like this. It's another way of saying this guy is not a mere man is what they're trying to convey. Now remember, they were not just temple police in the the order of police that we would have today. Our, our police are trained in order to handle crowd control. They're, they're, they're trained in hand-to-hand combat. They're, they're trained to understand law, and they're trained to keep things orderly and together. If you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that the temple police or the officers were the Levites. This is a group that are trained in the law. They were taught the word of God. They had memorized the law of God. And they're listening to Jesus and they're like, no one has ever taught like this man has taught. They're stunned by what it is that Jesus is saying. In verse number 47, the Pharisees go into this condescending critical mode against those temple officers. They rebuke them, not for their lack of professionalism as temple police, but rather for their perceived lack of spiritual discernment as Levites. They're saying, you've been duped by a con artist. They go on in verse 49 to say, you're no better than the untrained, uneducated crowd. And then to add insult to injury, they imply all along the way that the real experts, the real ones who know the law of God being the Pharisees, They're like, we've not been fooled because had he really been Messiah, we would have been the first to have recognized him as Messiah. But even among the Pharisees, there's division. It comes with one man. His name is Nicodemus, same one who came to Jesus by night. In fact, Nicodemus, if you'll remember, was one of the most prominent Pharisees. He was actually the most notable teacher of Israel, chapter 3, verse 10. And although it's not clear that he is a disciple of Jesus at this point, we do know that later on in his life, he becomes a disciple of Jesus, chapter 19, verse 39. But Nicodemus now challenges his colleagues by raising a procedural concern in verse 51. He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing. Does it? In other words, he's saying, you're claiming to be experts in the law, but our law doesn't allow for what you're doing right now. Our law doesn't accuse someone unless it first hears what the person is saying, unless it first understands what the person is doing. You're not acting in accordance with the law. Well, they did not like that a bit. In fact, they say in verse number 52, in a mocking sense, search the scripture and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. FYI, before you make a bold biblical claim, make sure you know the Bible first. Because they overlooked the fact that the prophet Jonah was actually from Galilee. 
2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Biblical scholars believe that Nahum, Hosea, and several of the other prophets may have also been from the region of Galilee. Now, regardless of where the other ones were from, what you can see is that his colleagues used an ancient debate tactic, and that is when you can't answer the argument, attack the speaker. Almost sounds like what's happening in our world today. These things are not new. In fact, when you turn on the news and you listen to how people just badmouth and call each other names the whole time, that's, that is an ancient tactic for what you do in a debate when you don't know how to answer intelligently. So in verse Num, or in chapter number seven alone, we've got this hodgepodge of all these different divided people. There's believers, there's rejectors, there's haters, there's fence sitters. It is literally what Jesus predicted back over in Luke 12 when he said, I have come to divide people against each other. Now, ultimately, this division can be traced back to three categories. And that brings us to our key truth for this morning. Key truth number one. Jesus will divide people by his identity, with his message, and through his actions. Jesus will divide people by his identity, with his message, and through his actions. Now, here's what I mean by those categories. His identity. He claimed to be the son of God, the light of the world, the water of life, the bread of life. I mean, he had many claims as to who he was. His actions were those that he healed on the Sabbath. He hung out with known sinners. He would not submit to man-made religious rules. He died on a cross. He rose again the third day. All of those were actions that were part of his life. Also, his message. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He preached about the will of the Father. He preached about the necessity of repentance, about the importance of faith. All of those pieces are those that create division. Now, we might not like it. It might not be comfortable when there's family member against family member and friend against friend, neighbor against neighbor. We, we might not like it, but that is the reality of what comes with Christ. In fact, we know there's always, always, going to be some level of division that exists around Jesus. The reason we know that is because Scripture clearly says, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there are that find it. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many there are that are on that path. In other words, there's going to be far more who reject the truth of who Jesus is. Far more who reject the reality of what Jesus did. Far more who reject the importance of what he taught. That's a part of what comes with Christ. Now, it's those categories that divide between believers and unbelievers. Chapter 3, verse 18. Between those who walk in light and those who walk in darkness. Chapter 8, verse 12. The sheep from the goats, chapter 10, verse 26, and the children of God from the children of the devil, chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus even went as far as to say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, that you are either for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground here. So key truth number one, Jesus will divide people by his identity, with his message, and through his actions. You and I cannot force anyone to believe the message of Christ. But likewise, you and I cannot walk as faithful followers of Christ and downplay that message or disregard 
that message. There's always going to be some level of division. That leads us into key truth number two. Jesus will unite his people. That's key. His people by his spirit, with his grace, and in his love. Now, this second truth is not found in this text immediately. It is found in the broader teachings of the New Testament. The reason I included it here is I didn't want the last thought in your mind to be, Jesus is going to divide people. Have a great Sunday. Because then people are like, well, listen, I'm, I'm free to just go through dividing people. No, you need to understand the other part of this as well. Also, I'm not saying that this second truth is exhaustive. I could make a solid argument that we could see that humility leads people to unity and that we find that focusing on essential truths leads people to unity or walking in biblical wisdom will lead people to unity. So I am not saying that it is only these three things that lead to unity. What I am saying is these three areas are critical to our unity in Christ. Now, I want you to see the connection between truth number one and truth number two. In the first key truth, there were three categories that divide believers from unbelievers. His identity, his message, his actions. All of which are part of the gospel message. In other words, the gospel itself contains the reality of who Jesus is, of what Jesus offered, and of what Jesus did. In other words, the gospel is going to be the first thing that unites us together as followers of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that takes us from darkness into light, from lost to saved, from children of Satan to children of God. The gospel is essential. So since that is already shared in truth number one, I did not repeat it again in truth number two, but it is the foundation of truth number two. Because once a person receives the gospel message by grace through faith, the Holy Spirit of God indwells that person. At the moment of salvation, they are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Based on Ephesians 4, verse 4, there is only one Spirit. Now, notice the way that the indwelling Holy Spirit begins to bring unity among his people. We find 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Do you see that unity and that togetherness and that coming together? It's it's all coming back to one Spirit. Now, the things that once divided us now become beautiful pieces within the body of Christ, showing that how God can reach a diverse group. He can reach people from different ethnicities, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, people from different age brackets. It's beautiful now to see how those differences come together and create this wonderful collage of God's people. In Ephesians 2, The Apostle Paul goes on to tell us how the church comes together. And he says, you are being built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one bringing us together. We find that the Holy Spirit also is mentioned again, Ephesians 4.3. That is, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, somebody might be thinking, well, Paul... If we've all got the Holy Spirit that comes at the moment of salvation, why in the world are there so many divided Christians? Why do we have so many denominations? Why are some of the meanest people I know 
people who call themselves Christians. Like if we got the spirit of God, it sounds like we're good to go. Here's what I'm trying to say. Even though you have spirit-filled Christians, it does not mean that we act like spirit-filled Christians and talk like spirit-filled Christians, nor speak like spirit-filled Christians. We still battle the flesh. There's still remnants of that old nature that we are working through. So has God given us anything for this battle? The answer is yes. He gave us the gospel that frees us. That's piece number one. He gave us his spirit who now indwells us. That's piece number two. And here's the next one. He also gives us his grace that enables us. Now, I've given this definition before. That is, grace is God's unmerited favor in which he does in us and through us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So with that understanding of grace, listen to this passage, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Look at what happens. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's wonderful. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. We find that Peter says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So grace does not come naturally to us. We live in a society that praises self-reliance at every level. And for there to be people who are walking in grace and they're experiencing God living in and through and for them, for that to become a reality, we have to be willing to walk in God dependence. Because the Bible clearly says, James chapter 4, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, we find that God's grace comes after Humility, as we humble ourselves before God, that is when we are infused with his grace. That is when God can do in and through and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If we are unwilling to be humbled and unwilling to walk in humility, we don't tap into the grace of God. Grace is going to be something that comes to people who are willing to live by the mantra, I can't, but he can through me. We live in a world that goes exactly against that mantra. We live in a world where the marks of who you are as a man or the marks of who you are as a woman are based on whether or not you can do it yourself. We value the self-made person thinking that, man, they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they made it happen and they worked hard and they were smarter than everybody else and they got their stuff together. We look at that and we're like, that's a good person. And yet God does not value that. He says he values the humble. Because when we're humble, not only can he live in and through us, but when we're humble, we will not take the glory for what he does in our lives. We are willing for him to be glorified there. So this might be something just for you. I'm not quite sure. But I want you to think about it. You don't have to just think relationally. Just think about other areas of your life. Are you going through some difficult trials today? Are you facing some obstacles that will not budge? Are you tired of getting out of one problem only to find out there's three more bigger than that waiting on the other side? 
Do you know what you need? Grace. You need God to do in you and through you and for you what you cannot do for yourselves. How do you tap in on that? Humble yourselves before God. Humility precedes grace. Now, the final part of that statement is that Jesus unites his people in love. Probably one of the most famous passages you find in the Bible on love, 1 Corinthians 13, shows up in all sorts of wedding ceremonies. It gives this description of love. It says love is patient, it's kind, it's not envious, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, it rejoices in truth. It bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. That's, that's what love is. Here's just a question for you. How many divisions and problems in the church would go away overnight if we learned how to love each other well? When it talks about the fact it doesn't boast in what's wrong, it rejoices in truth, it's not arrogant, it's not prideful, it's not envious. I mean, all of those things lead to and they fuel divisions among God's people. Now, somebody might say, Paul, I don't even like some people around me, much less love them. I mean, how am I supposed to love them if that's what this text is saying? Listen, you can't. You need grace. You need God to do in you and through you and for you what you cannot do for yourself. You, you need God to live his love through you. Whenever somebody wrongs you, instead of trying to figure out how to hurt them worse, pray and say, God, how can I love that person well? So here's our concluding thought. What should we know about division and unity from a biblical perspective? I've given you two truths. Truth number one Jesus will divide people by his identity, with his message, and through his actions. We cannot force people to believe, and at the same time, we cannot downplay, reject, or not share the truths of Christ. Key truth number two, Jesus will unite his people by his spirit, with his grace, and in his love. Now, our theme for 2019 as a church is further together. It kind of implies that there needs to be unity that is involved in this. That's that whole together part. Now, will we ever agree on everything? No. But can we have essential unity? You better believe it. Why? Because the gospel frees us. Because his spirit indwells us. Because his grace enables us. And because his love binds us together. All of that is essential to our unity. Are there going to be some times along the way when we're called to take a stand and lead to division? Absolutely. Are there also going to be some times along the way that God's saying, humble yourself and submit for the sake of unity? Absolutely. Are there going to be some times that we mess up? Yes. What do you need then? Grace. Are there going to be times that we sin against each other? Yes. What do you need then? Love. What we need to be united is what God has already provided. When people who live in a world that is divided, that is slanderous, that is backbiting, when people who live in that seven days a week, 24-7, when those people see a group of diverse individuals who are together and who are united and who love each other well, and who are willing to sacrifice and care for each other's needs, 
who have purpose in their lives, who are on mission for something bigger than themselves, when people see that, it is unbelievably attractive. And then at that time, you find that those who are rejectors become curious seekers. And those who are curious seekers become faithful followers. And the kingdom of God expands, and we see God taking us further together. So how do we bring all that together at the very end of the message? We're going to celebrate communion as we close. If there's one piece that God has given his church regularly to show that there's one family, he brings us back to what it is that brought us into the family and what it is that keeps us walking in right relationship with him, it is going to be the subject, the topic of communion. So here's what I'm going to ask you all to do. At this time, I'm going to ask if Matt, if you guys, the praise band will come forward. For those of you that are in the congregation right now, I'm going to encourage you over the next several minutes to spend time with God and just say, God, is there any unconfessed sin that is in my life right now? Is there anything that has not been brought before you? And when God brings things to mind, confess it before God and thank him for the forgiveness you have in Christ. Let's pray as we go forward with this. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to move. God, that you would set our hearts, our minds in a place where we can hear clearly from you. God, I pray that you would bring to mind any type of sin that is in the hearts of those that are in this room. May it be confessed. But God, at the same time, may we relish and rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So God, would you help us to see the unity that comes by knowing you? In Jesus' name, amen.